0: Hi, Chris Vallotton here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvallotton.com. I, I want to um, talk to you about um, becoming covenant, new covenant solutionaries or people who help the world with solutions. And I, I, I've been thinking about actually sharing on this for year, really years about uh, the way that we interact with the world. And, and I, I've been, um, I, I just got back from, um, from um, Sacramento and meeting with some, some uh, folks in the political world and just thinking about, like, I, I left there feeling like, wow, it feels like the world is going the wrong way. And I, I was you know driving home by myself, just praying and thinking and, and meditating on um, where we're going, both as a as a people, as a movement, our movement, where we're going as, uh, as a, uh, the people of California, of America, and, and, and a, as the world, and just thinking through, like, how does God get involved in history? How does God get involved in the, the affairs of men? And when does God intervene, and where, when does he hold back? And I I, um, I I wrote a little bit of this out, and I'd like to just kind of share just a few thoughts as we move into this message. Um, our covenant with God benefits the world around us, whether they know it or not. God loves the world, and therefore He made His people to be salt and light to help preserve the world and illuminate the nature his nature and although jesus def- but although Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, there are times throughout history when the world seems to be under the onslaught of evil rather than the presence of the kingdom. Partly because we live in this divine tension between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. Why don't you turn to Psalms chapter 2. And I I think that, you know, this is a a psalm written, I think, by David. Pretty sure this is a psalm of David. And there are times, and I think that David, I think, went through these same kind of, if you will, soul-searching times when he felt like, he knew that God was the king, the king of the world. Just read through the Psalms, God's the ruler of the nations. And yet, other times, but yet in the midst of his knowing that God is in charge, and ultimately, you know, how many know God's in charge, but in a, in a, in a unique way or even a strange way, he's not in control? In, 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 and what we mean by that, and I think Bill initially uh, coined that phrase. God's in charge, but he's not in control. And every time you put that on social media, people get mad and like, God's in control of everything. Well, if God was in control of everything, there would be no murder. There would be no molestation. There would be no, ch- you know, it just goes on and on. Like there would be sin if God was in charge. And, and, uh, if God was in control, I'm sorry. But uh, but in the other sense, God is in charge. He's ultimately in charge of everything. And so I I've been living with this Uh, deep sense of seasons and uh, epoch seasons, like a way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time, and also these kairos moments when divine favor meets divine opportunity. And so I want to just take a look through the scriptures a little bit and then tell you what I feel like the Lord is saying in this time for us as a movement. I know there's many people in here that you're, you're visitors, and we're so thankful to have you. And you're watching by Bethel TV, and you're like, ah, don't include me in your movement or your family. You guys are kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, the weird people follow Bill. <laughs> That's how I got in, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Some, I, listen, you were thinking it, so I'm just like, I'll just say it right up front. Like, you're his first weird disciple, you know? So. Um, but let, let's just read Psalms too and understand, And we both understand, we all understand that we're reading, when we're reading the Old Testament, we're not factoring in the blood of Christ and so uh, oftentimes the warfare that that David and the psalmist and the Old Testament people talk about is very, um, you know, it's, it's the good guys against the bad guys and it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about human warfare, and yet we know in Ephesians six that as new covenant people, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But I still think the principles are are great, and we also see the mindset of this in this case, a king who's asking God, like, who's in charge, and when are you going to act? And so I love this psalm because it, it, it jumps into really uh, David's uh, thoughts about this. Verse one. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear them their, their feathers. I don't know what a fetter is, but whatever it is, apart. Let's tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. I think fetters are like chains or something. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his wrath saying but as for me i have installed my king my king upon zion my holy mountain uh, before we go on it's uh, like su- such a beautiful passage to me you know david's like why are the kings in an uproar why are they why are they persecuting and prosecuting and 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 trying to destroy the, the god's anointed and, and i i think that you know we can i understand there's a, 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 in my mind there is there is kind of a there is kind of a, a a correlation between what David is seeing and in my mind what we see especially in the heavenlies in that there seems to be this war over who gets to shape culture it gets very personal and 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 I think uh, I, in in my lifetime and I you know I, I'm fairly old but I would I wouldn't encompass all of history or anything like that there are older people in the room. But I, I, I personally have never seen this, this tension that I, that, I, that I feel today. I don't mean, the, uh, I, I feel actually pretty peaceful in the last 8, 9, 10 years. But I'm talking about the trauma in the heavenlies that seems to have physical manifestations. Uh, am, am I making any sense? I'm trying to put words to the sense I have, the feeling I have, and I, I think that you probably have the very some of the very same feelings. And you know, um, you have to remember that when I say that, like I lived through uh, John F. Kennedy being assassinated, his brother Robert Kennedy being assassinated, Martin Luther King being assassinated. So uh, you know, the civil rights movement, the the uh, the Black Power movement, um, the the Vietnam War. Um, you know, the Afghanistan war, the Iraqi war. I mean, I, I was alive, uh, so obviously a, a boy in some of those times, but I was alive during all of these conflicts, and they were definitely conflicts. I can remember exactly where I was at when when uh, John F. Kennedy, one of my heroes, was assassinated. I can remember the exact moment. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy. Um, I, I mean, uh, the assassination attempt on on uh, um, President Ronald Reagan. I mean, I remember all those things. So I'm not saying I've never seen conflict, but I've never felt conflict like this that is manifesting in so much division among people. And it's not just in America. It's all over the world. And you know, and I, I grew up as a boy. How many of you are old enough to remember believing the Russians were the bad guys and we were hiding under our... <laughs> Good, we got some old... It helps me. Some of the young people, they just laugh. are like, oh, yeah, you guys didn't really do that. I'm like, yeah, we really did that. Like, like we, were, we had air raid alarms. Do you remember this? We had air raid practices, and we hid underneath our chair. This is like, this is so, this is like, look back. I'm like, we're underneath our desk. We're like, you hear the air raid, and you're supposed to like get underneath your desk and grab your desk. This is for the atomic bomb. But you remember this, like, the, am, I, am I telling the truth? Guys, like, and I think it, it's all about you feeling good about dying because it's not going to have anything to do with you living. And it's funny, I went to, and I've been to Russia several times now, and our teams have been to Russia, and God's really opening up the Russian people. And I, by the way, I have really fallen in love with the Russian people. But I was sharing this story amongst some leaders there, you know, just talking about the reconciliation that we're having with them, uh, Americans having with Russians, uh, believers having with Russian believers. And I was telling them the story, and they started laughing. They said, we were hiding under our desk, too. <laughs> so, so when I, when I say, I, I, I'm trying to give some validity to this thought. I've lived in those times. I re- my uncle built a bomb shelter. That was very popular. I knew many people who had a bomb shelter and my family. We had a big family meeting, and my, and my, my family, my, my, my uncle built a bomb shelter, and my, that was my family's bomb shelter. It was built in a central place so that we could all get to it in a time of war and live. This, I, mean, I mean, it wasn't just like a little passive anxiety. People were terrified that someone was going to push the button and we were all going to die. And we lived with that as little children. As far back as I can remember, we lived with someone's going to push that button and we're all going to die. And I want to say those were tense moments. But I've never lived in the tension that I see today. I've never lived in the tension I see today. I, I, did, I don't mean I haven't lived in more danger because I have lived in more danger. I think the world has got, I know you're going to, I can only imagine what, what I'm going to get now. I think the world has become safer and safer and safer. Now, that being said, if someone pushes a button and blows us all up, then this sermon will self-destruct, so no one will ever know I said this. I mean, if you've, got, if you've done a study of, of wars in the last hundred years, you know that wars have dramatically de- decreased. That doesn't mean that there isn't violence in the streets. I'm not trying to take anything away from, you know, your eschatology of people getting worse, whatever. You won't need to believe. But the, the actually actually, wars have dramatically increased and the world has gotten safer. I'm talking about physically safer. But I've never felt this much tension in the spirit that has divided people and set people against one another. And in America, now I know, we've been sheltered, guys. We've lived in a wonderful country. And if you live in another country, I hope you love your country as much as we love our country. Because we love our country. We're very patriotic. In America, we have, been, we have been largely sheltered from religious um, prejudice. Largely sheltered. I, there's always been some. But there is an all-out onslaught. When I use the word religion now, I'm using it in a positive way. There is an all-out onslaught against religious values. And I, I never grew up with any of that. Like when I was a boy, even though I didn't grow up in a religious home, I didn't grow up as a Christian, religion was very much seen as a positive thing and something my, my grandparents did not lead me in. And so um, when, I, when I read this passage of Psalms 2 where David says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising vain things? And the kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel against the Lord and gets this anointed. I'm like, this feels very true today. This feels, like he, this feels like David could have wrote this for American 21st century culture. Because this feels very true. And then David begins to remind himself of some things. And, and, and now, if we could kind of, I'm going to spiritualize this a little bit. I realize that this is probably what David meant. But I think that this is very much what's happening in the spirit realm and what God's doing in this, if you will, the spiritual warfare. The Lord scoffs at them. He, he sits in the heavens and laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. I, I love that passage because it kind of, uh, you know, Proverbs says, the right, the wicked, uh, he sets a trap. Oh, he digs a pit, it says in my version. He digs a pit for the righteous, but then he falls in it himself. <laughs> Do you remember that old roadrunner? I <laughs> said, man, I'm really dating myself. Some, some of the young people aren't even hearing the message. They're like, I'll, I'll catch it later. I'll look it up on... <laughs> Wikipedia and see if I can figure out what he's talking about. You remember the old Roadrunner cartoon? Or the, uh, the, was it Wiley Coyote, I think? That was always setting a trap for the Roadrunner. And then, you know, he's got this trap, he's got it all set, and then the Roadrunner, me, and, and then the bomb goes off, and the coyote blows himself up like over and over again. And he never dies, but it's, so, it's kind of cool. And uh, <laughs> nowadays they show his body parts everywhere, and he, he, he dies. But we weren't, we weren't violent in those days, we used sticks. Um, like, I love this passage because it, you know, you, David's like, I see the enemies of God, they're oppressing us, and he goes through this whole long dissertation about how bad things are, and then he goes, and then I looked in the heavens, and God's laughing, and he's scoffing at them. He's like, you guys are so stupid. I'm <laughs> like, it's just like, ha. I, I was driving home from Sacramento, and we were talking about uh, so many of the things that are happening right now, is transgenderism, and things that are happening in our school, and it was like three hours of like, it's one of those things you, one of those kind of, I mean, the people were good, trust me, it was just when you're talking about challenges and problems, and oh my goodness, and, and everybody in that meeting was super intense, and I'm usually the most intense person in a room, and, and I was like mild-mannered in there, and I'm like, wow, there are more intense people than me, and as I was driving home by myself, and I'm like, "Man, I need a washing of the water by the Word," because I left there feeling low, not excited about life, thinking what is happening. And I recalled—I I actually don't know this chapter very well. Um, it's not—it's not a chapter I've memorized but i recalled the psalms the kind of the content of psalms too remembering that the lord that the david is complaining about his enemies taking over the world and what's 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 going to happen and why is this happening and then i remember this part of the psalm on my on my drive home like but the lord thinks it's funny it's like a bunch of ants I was thinking about ants. You know, my wife hates ants. Like, it's so crazy. Like, we're we lived in the woods for twenty years, and like we've had bear, skunk in our house. We had a bear try to get in our house. We had deer live around us, I and mean, we would have been in utter danger. And my wife's a killer. She like shoots deer. She's a bear hunter. She's a hunter, and she's afraid of ants. She hates them. She's afraid of them. Like she like she she's like. Like we have if you go to our house, we literally have we have this ant spray in nearly every cabinet, just in case she can get to them right away. And spiders. She hates them. And and, and you know they, they they build these you know these sand castles and you go over and you knock them all down. Then a few minutes later they're all back building it again. So that feels like what the Lord does, like just knocks over their sand castle and watch them all come back and but listen how listen how David finishes this. As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, the holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, "You're my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall scatter them like you shall shatter them like earthware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment and take warning for the Judge of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence." reverence. And rejoice with trembling. I just wanna wanna read that because I just wanna remind you like, we (laughs) win. Like, whenever you're reading, you watch too much of the news and you're like, what is going on? Oh my goodness, the world's getting worse. Just go over to Psalms 2, it's like, we win. We win. And then God's ultimately in charge, He's ultimately in charge. And um, so I I, I love that that, uh, passage. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the power of God's presence the power of God's presence um, in in 1 Samuel chapter 5 if you want to turn there um, there's this uh, if you're not aware of it some of the folks that are with us are new believers and maybe haven't heard some of these stories but the Lord made a covenant with Moses and told Moses to build something called the Ark of the Covenant how many of you never heard that term the Ark of the Covenant Okay, so at least you've heard that term, and basically it was a it was a, a fancy box with um, it, inside the box it had the Ten Commandments in it, it had the uh, rod uh, the almond branch of Aaron in it, and it had uh, the manna it had manna in it. It was kind of like the Ark of the Covenant, or it's, uh, another uh, another another name for it was the Ark of the Testimony. So it was like these were. These were acts. These were these were mementos, if you will, of the acts of God that were in the box. But here's the odd thing: some people would say it was a symbol of the presence of God. But actually, it wasn't just a symbol; of the presence of God. It was the presence of God, and it was uh, to be. It was uh, ceremonially to be carried on the. Uh, they, they had uh, the uh, the box. This box, big box. They had it on poles and they would carry it. It was, it was by uh, God ordered them to carry it on the shoulders of the priests. And Bill's taught a lot on that, and we're really not going to talk much about that tonight. The part I want you to know is that God covenant to be in the box. <laughs> so, Don't put me in a box. God lived there for a long time. Um, some people would want to remind us that he wasn't just in the box. Yes, but he was definitely in the box. And so <laughs> the, the Israelites took a lot of confidence... In having the ark with them because it was like, I, I know this sounds so silly, but like a, the, when they were walking with God, they took a lot of confidence in the box being with them because they knew God was with them. When they weren't walking with God, they kind of treated it like a lucky charm, like a rabbit's foot, like, we've got to have the ark with us, you know, we'll win. And, and, and when they weren't walking with God, even though God was in the box, God wouldn't act on their behalf in the old covenant. And so, this is one of the times in 1 Samuel 5, 1, the Philistines, they, uh, they're fighting the Philistines. They take the ark. I'm sorry, the, the Israelites go in with the ark. The, the Levites go first, and they go in with the ark. And, and they're all shouting because, you know, they got the ark with them, and it's kind of like a, you know, almost like the energy of a football game. Everyone's shouting, we're going to win. And the, what they don't know is that they've broken relationship with God. So, God is not going to seemingly act on their behalf. And so what happens is, instead of winning, the Philistines capture the box. Now the Philistines know that the box is some kind of religious special thing, but they don't actually know God's in the box. (laughs) Like they just think like it's a rabbit's foot, you know? It's kind of like some kind of a symbol, but they don't actually know that God's actually in the box. So they take the box, and it's kind of a funny story. They take the box to to the city, and, you know, kind of put it in the city. I don't know, captured God or whatever. And, and everybody in the city gets hemorrhoids. <laughs> like they have a hemorrhoid breakout. And so they're like, hmm. And they're not sure, you know. So they get some wise men together. They're wise men together. They're like, hey, we all had hemorrhoids. And, and they go, well, you know, maybe it's the box. But maybe it isn't. Why don't we take it to a next city <laughs> and see what happens? So they take it to the next city and they all, they all, they have a hemorrhoid breakout. <laughs> so they're like, so then, so then as they're passing, they're like, what city should we take to? And they're, all the, guys, the elders are like, not here. We're good. And so they're like, how do we get rid of these hemorrhoids? You know, they didn't have preparation H in those days. So how do we get rid of these hemorrhoids? So the priests, they're, they're priests, obviously false priests, false prophets. They're like, let's make some golden hemorrhoids. <laughs> Dude, you can't even make this stuff up. <laughs> and offer it to their God. I don't have any idea how you offer, go let him rise to God. Oh, it just gets worse and worse. The presence of God in the presence of evil people who are determined to not like God's not always good. And so they, they find like, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll put it in the temple of Dagon. That, that should work. So they put it in there. This is, this is the story right now, 1 Samuel 5. They put the ark in the temple of Dagon, which is like this big... Dagon is the god of fertility, and it's this great big statue, and they put the ark in there. And the next morning they come in, the priests come in, and, and Dagon is Dagon. <laughs> he's, he's on his face before God. And they're like, oh well, maybe. And like these poor priests, like they, like you just you kind of got a feel for them, you know, because they're like, oh, maybe that was a coincidence too. So they, they stag Dagon back up, and and the next morning they come in, and Dagon is not only did he fall down, but he broke his head off, and both of his hands, and it's just his just his trunks there. And they're like, oh, we're not going in there. <laughs> we're not going in there. Listen, we're not going in there anymore. And, and it's so funny to me because God doesn't share his power with anybody but his people. And it's just, it's just a sign to me that sometimes you think you just have a box. You are not factored in that God's in there. And you're like, I you know Dagon is you know, teaching, being taught in the school system. He's, he, he is, he's ruling our communities, and believers are like, oh, things are getting so bad. And then one day, he just lost his head. <laughs> he's just, he's just, he just lost his head. And I don't know. It's just such a funny story. And Second Samuel chapter 6 is another great story. Bill, Bill has so many great teachings on the early days of uh, Mountain Chapel. Bill taught this whole series on worship in the Tabernacle of David, and I still have them. I have lots of them just memorized, but this is the story uh, in Second Samuel again with the box with the Ark of the Covenant, and David's like, "We got to get the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, into the city of David." So they go through this whole thing, and by the way, I, it would take the whole evening to explain this in a in a way that was uh, that was really accurate. But they're taking the the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in a cart instead of the instead of instead of carrying it on the shoulders of the priest, they put it in an ox cart, and they're heading for the uh, For uh, the city of David, everyone again is excited. you can imagine it 's kind of like the energy in a football game, and people are just whoa, here comes the ark, and people are dancing and shouting and it 's you know this think like hey we 're going to have the box with God in it in our city and then uh, and then the ark uh, and then i 'm sorry, the cart like hits a rock, and the ark almost falls off the cart, and this guy Yuza, he goes to grab a hold of the ark to, to, so it doesn't fall out of the cart and, and God kills him. <laughs> and say, Listen, aren't you glad for the cross? <laughs> I read those stories like, I'm so glad I live on this side of the cross. <laughs> I'm sure I've touched that box many times and lived, you know? And, 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 and God just kills him. And so David is like, you know, the party just dies right there and people are like, oh no, how are we going to get the box? <laughs> so it's like, it's just such a crazy story. And so they parked this box, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry. They parked the Ark of the Covenant at Oban Edom's house. Now remember, when the Ark of the Covenant, just a few years later, went to the Philistines' house, they all got hemorrhoids. So I, I, I can imagine, you know, Uzzah just died. I mean, this isn't in the Bible. This is just my thinking. Like, they're like, hey, we're going to... You know, usually just died from touching the ark. The ark's got, you know, a reputation for giving people hemorrhoids. And they're like, uh, and, 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 and like, it just like, and it like, you know, how did they choose Obed-Edom's house? I, I don't know. I just imagine it was like a really close house. Like, we better not take this thing very much further. Who's close? I'll just put it in his garage. <laughs> they put the ark in Obed-Edom's house, garage. And I'm sure they're like, hey, how's your, uh, how you feeling?" you feeling? Know. <laughs> and here's a report. Everything in Odom Edom's house was blessed. As a, it was only there for three months, and it says this, and everything in Odom Edom's house was blessed. And the report comes back to David, and David's like, how's it going over there at the, uh, the garage with the, where the ark's parked, and they're like, everything in Odom Deedham's house is blessed. Everything is blessed. The guy has broke out in prosperity. His kids are well, his family's well, his marriage is good, his finances are amazing. David's like, oh, we, we gotta get that back. <laughs> and it's a great story how they how they get the ark there. My point is this, do you know the ark of the covenant of the Old Testament is you in the new? Do you know that God's not living in a box anymore? He's living in you. No, I, I don't know if you're getting this. I'm saying God lived in a box. I know he didn't just live in a box. I get it. Please don't send me. I get it. I understand it. But he lived in a box so that the presence of God affected people differently according to, in the old covenant, of course, their relationship with God. Do you realize God don't live in a box anymore, but he does live in you? And I, uh, okay, uh, let's see if the, I can explain this. Like, do you, do you understand that some people just—it's it, a metaphor, but follow me. Some people just thought it was a box, right? The Philistines were like, "Oh, you know, it's a lucky charm," and like, "Ain't no lucky charm. Like, God's in the box," right? And then, and then other people were like, they feared the box. Like, "Don't bring the box here. I don't know what's in there, but <laughs> it could be bad." And people just saw a box. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a beautiful box, you know. It had some gold and it, it it's had some arch artistry around it. But it was a box. But what they didn't realize is that the box had the presence of God of all the earth living in the box. And that box lives in you. Or let's say it. More accurately, the God of that box lives in you. Metaphorically, you are the box that God lives in. You are the Ark of the Covenant. When that, when you receive, are you with me? When you receive Jesus, He moved into your garage. More than your garage, He moved into your personhood. He actually lives inside of you. Like, do you understand? Like, like the way the Ark of the Covenant benefited Odom-Edom. When that, when, when the whole, when God, it's going to be a little funny, let's not be disrespectful. When God moves in you, it benefits your whole neighborhood. You know, when an employer hires somebody that has the box in them, it benefits their entire company. Do you understand this? Like they may just see the box You, they're like, he's just a box. He's just human. He's got flaws and got some scratches and been through some stuff. Dropped the box a few times in a battle. He's got some nicks and stuff not perfect anymore. Maybe what they don't realize is what's inside. When you show up, this is probably obvious, God shows up. Like, like, you're like, I don't know what to do. Show up. It may be a city council meeting like, God, I don't know anything about politics. I don't even want to know about politics. I, 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 I'm, that's not even my interest. And God goes, I just need you to show up. What am I going to do when I get there? <laughs> no, no, you don't understand. You bring me. Listen, you may not even have to talk. You just show up and the presence of god the, the intense presence of god is covenant to be with you forever i think it was charles finney maybe bill could correct me but I, I think it was charles finney that he would walk in the factories i think i think intending to preach but he would walk in the factories and before was it finney before he'd preach whole factory workers would Be out on the ground. This is before the Toronto blessing. Way before the Toronto blessing. Like whole factory workers would be out on the ground under the presence of God. And Finney hadn't talked yet. What happened? He brought the box. Hadn't even done anything yet. I'm saying saying sometimes all you got to do is just show up. Sometimes the world looks out of control. You ever think that? Like, Ever you think, like, someone's going to push that button? I, I mean, um, we forget pretty quickly, but we, we had the uh, North Korean leader uh, just, I don't know, I'm very bad at time. Two, three years ago? Not long ago. Like, he's going to push that button. He's going to push that button, and he's going to blow the whole freaking world up. Gonna kind of push that button. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of nights praying for that leader. Oh God, let him have a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Oh God, let him have an encounter with you. Oh God, let him. You know his his family his family history is revival. By the way, I don't know if you know that. You don't have to go back more than two generations. His the leader of North Korea. His family were believers uh, uh, two generations back. If I, I think uh, not not that long ago. And like, Lord, let what his grandmother prayed, his grandfather prayed, let, let it be that first Timothy. I'm aware of the faith that's in you. It was in your m- grandmother and it was in your mother and now it's in you. And I, I think a lot, I mean, I think lots of us were praying And I mean, there were some days where like, it, it looked he, like he might press that button. And I'm like, oh Lord, just, just God, the, un, the unthinkable. And, and, and then it passes, and and I, I think about that in my in my life, and and you know things that happen in life. And have you ever thought about like the will of God, like the sovereign will of God? It feels like it's more like on a rubber band than a chain. Uh, do you know what I mean, metaphorically? Like it feels like the the will of God is like whoa, <laughs> and there's so that it's like oh, it's coming back. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's like kong. <laughs> you hit the chain. It's like. God, when are you going to act? Oh, it's getting worse, worse, worse. Whoa! Comes back. And I'm like, I have to remember that ultimately God is in charge. I think about the Tower of Babel, and uh, this is an interesting, I don't, I don't think I'm going to read the, the whole thing, but it's in Genesis 11, if you'd like to just look it up. But it, you know, it says the whole earth spoke the same language, and, and you probably know the story, they start building this tower. It's a very interesting tower because God's interested. I mean, you can imagine that people built all kinds of buildings in those days. And yet God's interested in this particular building. Because this isn't just a building. This is a way of reaching heaven outside of God himself. And it says they exchange, get this phrase, they exchange bricks for stones and tar for mortar. Why does it tell us what the tower of babel was made out of? How many know you are living what are you? You are living stones being built up as a spiritual house and how are you how are you held together by what every joint supplies? How many know they weren't living they weren't building a house to heaven with living stones but with dead bricks. Dead bricks. You are you, are you following me? Think about it like this. What is the difference between a brick and a stone? Anyone ever built with anything? A brick, you can take one brick out and put another one in. Like everyone, it's formula Christianity. It's formula humanism. It's like everybody's got to look the same. I only value people who are like me. And how many know you're not a living brick? You're a living stone. What's that mean? That means that God has divinely divinely placed you in a place in the wall, so to speak, that if you don't show up, no one else fits there. But, he, but here's the, uh, the real point I'm making in context. So they're building this, it says they're building a tower to heaven. And God goes, hey, let's go down and check out that building. <laughs> God's like the Message Bible on steroids. God's like, I heard they're building a building. Let's go down and check it out. And God looks at the building he's like, he might actually do this. <laughs> and so he just goes, I'll fix that. We'll just confuse their language. He doesn't knock down the tower and go, huh, oh, let's try an earthquake. And just every time you get it halfway up, we'll just knock it over with an earthquake. <laughs> Instead, he's like, cut some brew. He's like, I'll just make it so you guys can't understand each other. And the next morning they're like, hand me a shut shadabada. What does it need? that. What? Hey, bring the... <laughs> no one can understand each other. Like, the project ended. And the Asians are like... Oi-oh-ho. Just wanted to get you in there too, you know. Everybody's... And the Germans are like... Hand me a-. Anyway... And thankfully, the Americans were in there, English language, preparing the way of the Lord. I, I'm sorry, I know it was in King James. You know, what, what I really love about this passage is, is this part, in, in light of, think about where, where my head's at. God... Things don't look good. And I, and I, and I see God, and, and, and it's like, you know, people are metaphorically, they're building towers to God. There's, you know, humanism is taking over. It's, it's the tallest thing in the room. It's the tallest thing in your city. Like, everybody's coming to see it. And you're like, God, you see what this person's doing, and it feels like it's out of control. And then finally God goes, just shows up. Oh, I'll take care of that. It won't happen anymore. And I think, okay, here we go. I think about nuclear weapons and the ability to destroy the world. and I think, you know, that'll never happen without God's consent. M- maybe I should say it differently. I'll feel a safety in when I read stories like the Tower of Babel. When I look down and the, when the world's being taken over by humanism or it's been taken over by some crazy you know, uh, uh, person, Some crazy dictator, a monarch, and it's like he looks like he's going to kill the whole world. But God died to save the world. And I look down, I'm like, I can imagine God's like, oh, anyway, you get the idea. I just feel safe when I read stuff like this. It feels like God is like, there are chronos moments that I, I've taught this recently. I'm learning more and more about this, but, you know, there's chronos. Chronos, we get our word calendar our chronology. It's like, it's clock in a calendar. This is our daily, you know, we, we all live on it. Like, you, you can, in America, you can do the right thing, but you can be 10 minutes late. You're like, ah, oh, you're late. We, we've broken the world up into minutes, <laughs> Your whole world, like there's so much tension in the world. It's like, you came to a meeting, but you were late. You failed. You were late. You missed the minutes. Got a good heart. You're a nice person, but... We live really serving... Chronos, a clock and a calendar, dates and time. And uh, by the way, I, don't, I think it's—I don't think it's wrong. I think it—I just—I'm trying to explain. Like this is our daily life. This is how we live. And Then once in a while, seemingly, we run into this other way the Greeks related to time, called Kairos. And Kairos is not quantitative. It, measure, it, measure, it measures moments—the right moments, the opportune moment, the perfect moment—and it's when divine favor meets divine opportunity. And it's like—and and, you know when it says um, in the Second Chronicles, like this, the sons of Issachar understood the times. It, the connotation is that when God went from no, when God intervened in time, like when they when the sons of Issachar understood when they were in Kairos moments. And when they were in chronos moments. They understood that suddenly God, who is always in charge, suddenly decides he's going to, I don't know if this is exactly right, but going to take control. He's going to intervene. He's going to knock down the tower. He's going to take out that person. He's going to do what seems like the laws of physics, the laws of nature, and even, if you will, the new covenant seem to prohibit. And God goes, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take that verse where it says, and God sits in heaven and he does whatever he wants. And and it happens throughout history. Like, for instance, in, in Acts 12, we have a story where Herod, do you remember King Herod? He kills James. The, the uh, he kills James. Remember James and John. He kills James, and he he imprisons Peter. This is Herod. He he's openly going out after Christians, persecuting and and killing Christians. It's going on for like twelve years. Uh, it may have gone on before, longer than that, but the book of Acts records uh, him doing that for more than twelve years. He's a tyrant, and then one day he steps up on his praetorium. And he begins to give this message. And they begin to shout, A God! And not... Well, I'm sorry. How is it? The people began to cry out, The voice of a God, not a man. The voice of a God, not a man. He's done all this evil. Killed all these Christians. Killed some of the apostles. Imprisoned them. God keeps releasing. In fact, the previous chapter or the previous verses is Peter getting out of prison by an angel of the Lord. <laughs> For, through prayer. And the next scene, we see Herod is making a speech. And the people are like, he's a God and not a man. In the New Covenant, where God says he does good to to good, he makes it rain on evil and good. He forgives people who don't deserve it. We can go on and on. It's like we are living in Graceland. We are living in the season of grace. And yet it says, but an angel of the Lord struck the king and he died. It says he got ate by worms and died. You know why? Because he didn't give glory to God. He's killing all these guys. God doesn't kill him yet. This is is why I say it's like, it feels like the will of God's on a rubber band. It's like, he kills James. He imprisons Peter. He does all these bad things. We're like, God, intervene. God, save him. God, touch him. God, do something to him. And all of a sudden, he gives a speech, and God goes, that's it. You're dead. And God, I'm trying to explain something I hope you get. How many bad kings did God kill? Not very many did God personally kill. But, and this is in the new covenant, where God loves on people who doesn't deserve it. And he says that if you want to be like God, you have to love people who hate you and to pray for people who persecute you. And yet, this guy stands up and gives another speech and God goes, you're gone. I'm not talking about God killing people. I'm talking about God interrupting the normal course of history. I wrote this just in thought. Sometimes God transcends his new covenant grace and mercy and the message of loving his enemies to make an executive decision and kills the guy. We live day in and day out in Chronos, And then sometimes without warning, we get sucked into the vortex of eternity and experience the effects of infinity. There are times in history when God overrides the will of man and creates kairos moments. He creates divine exceptions to the rule, defies the laws of physics, and interrupts the trajectory of history. There are just times when God just goes, I do, and you're like, God, how can you wait? Let me tell you 14 reasons why you shouldn't have done that. And God goes, I'm God. There's lots of things you don't get. I'll take care of it this way. Of course, I'm not in all preaching about God killing kings. I'm talking about the fact that God interrupts history when he feels it's necessary the way he feels it's necessary. And I want to say this, you don't want to be on the bad side of that. Uh, um, gosh, in light of context, I want to be careful. The fear of God is only spoken of four times in the New Testament. It's spoken of, um, I had a list, I think um, Well, more than 100 times in the Old Testament for sure. I think it was like 147 times. Someone could look it up and count. Uh, Because the love of God is the emphasis in the New Testament. But we shouldn't forget that it's still spoken of. (laughs) Sometimes in our New Testament reading of the love of God, we lose respect, honor for God. And we start talking as if there's no judgment day. As if we'll never have to say, we'll never have to stand before God, and we live, we talk about, we we we, we talk about heaven and live like hell, and think there's there's not going to be any response from God. And I think once in a while, it's good to have a King Herod. Are you with me? Once in a while, it's good for God just to interrupt uh, the normal chronos of, of time and space, and He goes, "Oh, we're just going to do it this way." Another time, you probably remember—you're probably already thinking about it—is the only time in the New Testament when God killed two Christians, Ananias and Sapphira, for lying. I'd propose a lot of people lied in the New Testament. I mean, if God killed people who lied in this sanctuary, who'd be left? I propose maybe just Bill and I, and I'm not, I'm not sure about Bill. <laughs> Obviously joking about Moses. But, but I think you get the point. Like, what did they lie over? How much they sold the property for. They were trying to behave. Listen, they sold the property. They, uh, let me go let me back up. Everybody was selling everything, and giving the money to the apostles to take care of the poor among them. Ananias and Sapphira said, well, we got to get into that. And they sold a piece of property, but instead of giving it all, they gave a part. Who knows if they gave half or if they gave almost all of it, but they represented it as if they gave all, as if they were doing what everyone else did. And in a time when the... The presence of God is so heavy on a people to build trust and honor. And God is building something. He's building, if you will, I talked about origins last week. He's building origins, He's building a culture of trust and honor they didn't just lie they broke the foundations of a culture and God goes you can't stay I don't think he sent them to hell I don't think Ananias and Sapphira went to hell but God says you are polluting the foundations of the beginnings of what I'm building you can't be here and God takes them out I'm saying what they didn't realize in chronos Ah, gosh I hope this goes right in chronos times you you're not going to die for lying There are lots of verses about being forgiven, about God forgiving your sin, da-da-da. But but Ananias and Sapphira ran into a kairos time. They didn't discern that this isn't normal... Normal line. Uh, It's the worst articulation probably ever. I don't think lying is normal. Oh, this isn't common line. This isn't your little white lie. I'm not saying it was the... How, how bad the lie was, it was that they were trying to look like everyone else yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a season where God was laying the origins, he was laying the foundations of Christianity, he was saying trust is built on honesty, on honor on transparency, on authenticity. He was building the foundations. They did, they did not realize that this isn't just a little like, oh, we can't come today, we're busy. Oh, we'd love to come to your house, and we oh, we never want to go there. <sighs> come on, I'm, look at me. How many times have someone said, we'd love to have you over? Oh, we'd love to come. And you walk away like, I never go to that house. I don't even like those people. Little lies. You don't want to have a little lie in a kairos moment. You misunderstood that God, I don't know, can we say God's changing the rules? Or we can say God, God has executive privilege, or however we want to say it. And in this case, it's negative. But over and over and over, it's positive. Like, we're talking about negative kairos moments right here. Negative in the sense that somebody lost their life. But there are so many positive Kairos moments in the Bible where God goes, okay, that's it. it, it the Nehemiah walls, example, 114 years they're torn down, 72 years they're trying to rebuild them. And Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah's not a builder, he's not a contractor, he's never built a wall before. He shows up in Israel and they rebuild the walls in 50, just get this, 52 days. What they couldn't do in 72 years, they did in 52 days. How do they do that? Nehemiah stepped into a Kairos moment. He gets sucked through the vortex of God's acceleration because he understood the times, and he got in the vortex in the right time, in the right season, and God goes, shoo. Amazing. Are you with me? Some kind, sometimes God just interrupts. Uh, can I say? Sometimes he interrupts grace, or maybe, maybe, maybe a better way to look at it, maybe a more righteous way or a more theologically accurate way is to say he expresses grace in a way that we don't understand. He goes, I'm taking that guy. I'm doing this now. You won't be living anymore. Uh, let's take you early to heaven. And we're all, Why? what's happening? God goes, I just made an executive decision. You have no idea what I'm doing, but it's all for good in the end. I remember... Uh, when I was in high school, I, I've told this over and over. I had a God encounter when I was 15. My, mo, my mother got healed through this God encounter. But I didn't meet God for three years. But God was definitely after me. I mean, like, He was actually plaguing me. Uh, good plague. Uh, uh, one time, I, I was so... I, I had an encounter with... I, I said to God, I'll just tell you quickly. My mother was really sick with psoriasis. I hadn't... I didn't know God at all. And I said out loud in my bed... God, if you heal my mother, I'll find out who you are and I'll serve you the rest of my life. And an audible voice says, you have what you accepted. You have what you asked for. And the next morning, my mother was completely healed. And a week later, the voice came back and he said, you said that if I healed your mother, you'd serve me and I'm waiting. So there was this three-year journey. Well, so in the middle of this three-year journey, I'm in my, my psychology class. My psychology class isn't just a psychology class. My psychology teacher is an evangelist for atheism. He does not believe in God, and he makes it known nearly every class. And remember, this is during the Jesus Movement, which I didn't know there was a Jesus Movement until I graduated and I realized I got saved in the Jesus Movement. But I think it was, think it was a response to something that was happening in culture. Anyway, we got told every, nearly I don't want to say every week, but we got told often there is no God, and you know, he was... He was he was teaching us Freud and all this crazy stuff, and you know I was so ADD and I couldn't read anyway, so I, I there's no no chance he had any influence over me for for any reason. So one day I'm sitting in class and doing what I'm doing, you know I'm, I'm like you know I, I'm, I'm I'm half listening, I don't get it, I don't understand. And he's talking about this thing, I remember him talking about Freud and, and he's talking about and you know and evolution and there is no God and people who, and then he makes fun of people who believe in God and he's going on and on. Remember, I'm just like I have I'd never read the Bible. And out of the blue, I stand up in the class and I give a complete dissertation on the divine design, the divine nature of God and his divine design in in, in nature. 8 minutes, 10 minutes long. This whole exhortation, using words I've never heard before. And I'm, and I'm, I'm standing. I just, I, I'm sitting there, and I'm just listening to them. And, and I'm just, I can still remember this part. I'm thinking, gosh, man, what time is class over? Wow, I'm so bored. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm standing. I'm like, well, let me tell you what God says about that. And I give this entire exhortation about the divine nature of creation. Remember, I've never read the Bible. I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm totally calm and bold, as if I knew what I was talking about. And then I sat down. The teacher was terrified to say anything. He just looked at me like. The class stood spontaneously and started clapping. Just started spontaneously clapping. And then when I left, the class gathered around me like, wow, man, what have you been studying? I'm like... The teacher who... Remember, the teacher's like, he's like, there is no God, da-da-da, all stuff. When he sees the stupidest student in his room stand and give an exhortation on God, he's like... I, I can still... He wore glasses, little BB-eyed guy... I'd guy. I I still remember him, like, the look on his face while I was giving the exhortation, like, I, personally, was a sign and a wonder. It wasn't even what I was saying. It was the fact that I I strung together sentences with university language. He never, in any class I was in after that, he never spoke of atheism the rest of the year. I think he's afraid, i was gonna have another. <laughs> Got another one. Before I had the God encounter, when I was 15, a freshman in high school, before I had the God encounter, I told you about, about my mother getting healed. I'm a freshman and, and it was during the black power uh, days and our, our school was uh, 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 one third uh, black, African American, uh, one third Mexican, which we called uh, Chicanos in those days and, and one-third white. And it was a very violent school. It was about 27 to 3,000 students. And uh, and it was the days where... Uh, this is during the Civil Rights Movement, and the, uh, and, uh, and our poli- the police were at, in our school all the time because the, of the Black Power Movement. There was a lot of uh, um, African Americans that were rising up to the Black Power. The Black Panthers were on our campus. And if any of you re- remember that, it was very scary. As a white person, very scary. Uh, probably, probably as anybody, it's pretty scary, actually, uh, but, you know, and so I, I come on campus from uh, eighth grade, uh, uh, a junior high that was peaceful, that was uh, uh, in a white, predominantly white neighborhood, and then I get bused to this, this high school that is diverse, which is great. In fact, most of my close friends were, were, were black, but the, the turmoil was intense, So I remember I was probably, it might have been like the first month of school, definitely not more than the second month. I'm walking through the hall, I'm late, I'm I'm, I'm always late everywhere, my clock is broken or something's wrong with me, but I'm walking through the hall, the the bells already rang, I'm supposed to be in class, and I walk through the hall, and there's almost nobody in the hall, and I'm walking through the hall, and I'm just looking down, and like, I'm, I'm 132 pounds, 5 foot 11, like a string bean, right? Like I make Lance look fat. So I'm kind of rushing to my class. Oh my God, I'm late again. And this great big guy grabs me. He throws me on the ground and he gets on top of me, and and, and he starts wailing on me. He's he's hit me in the face and he's like, "I heard what you said about me. If you ever say that again," I, and I and I'm trying to say, "I don't even know who you are. I'm so sorry I don't remember faces. What did I say?" I'm like, I, "I'm sorry I don't know who you are." And he's he's. He's pounding on me. I'm like, I don't want to defend myself. He's just going to get madder. That's what I'm thinking when I'm laying on the ground. And I'm, I'm like, you know, he's punching me in the face, and he's kicking me, and he's on top of me. And then a bigger guy comes along, like bigger than him. And he grabs the guy, and he picks him up, and he throws him against the wall, and he pushes him like three times, and he says to him, he's my friend. If you ever touch him again, you will be dealing with me. Do you understand that? And I will know. And I'm, I'm, on, I'm laying on the ground still. And then he comes back, and and I kind of sit up, and he goes, if that guy gives you any more problems, you let me know. I will be right there. I go, thank you. (laughs) He takes about maybe from here to the door in the hall, and he disappears. Phew, vanishes. Remember, I've never read the Bible. Wow, a UFO sucked him up right after he helped me. (laughs) God just intervened. And I can go on. Like I, I had many of those encounters in the three years where I was journeying for God. It was like God would just show up. It was like, it was, it was, I'm sure it was kind of like this. But it was like God like, sent some angels. Okay, that guy, he's assigned to salvation. He's kind of a smart mouth. You want, might want to stay with him. And God intervened over and over and over. I could, say, I could spend the rest of the night just telling you story after story, crazy stuff. But remember, I still didn't know it was Jesus. But God was breaking in. I'm, I'm, You're you with me in Kairos moments. I'm, you know, I can imagine that that my ancestors from, from heaven. You know, the Hebrews, uh, uh, eleven people were surrounding us. Like, oh no, what's he going to do now? You know, how's it going to go? And God's like, oh, hurry, send the angel over there. He's about to get his butt kicked again. You know, I was always in trouble. God just—he's in charge. He just, he just knows what he's doing. And whenever you get to that place where it feels like, oh, things are bad, it's like, just remember God's will is kind of like on a rubber band. <laughs> That's terrible theology. I'm sure we'll get corrected. But it's like, I'm simply saying, like, like it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the, you know, uh, the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. It's like God has a plan. It looks like it's out of control. It looks like the world's going the wrong way. It's like, oh no, what's gonna happen? And then God like knocks over their tower. It looks like you're in a violent school. It looks like things are out of control. People are trying to kill you. Then God's, oh, oh wait. No. He's with me. You all right? Just call on me. Oh, what's your name? You <laughs> got a number. <laughs> I finish this last idea, you know, I remember uh, the story. I was telling uh, a bunch of congressmen the story the other day. And um, we were talking about the fact that if you're in Congress, you're not powerless, no matter what side of the aisle you stand on, because God put you there. You can't possibly be powerless. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, or you're Independent. If God called you to government, you're not powerless. And I was telling the story about this my friend, our friend. Um, he was a, a deputy sheriff in Trinity County, and we used to go to the convalescent Hospital every Sunday. Him and I would go to the convalescent Hospital for like five. I think five years, six years, um, and we would just go um, just pray for pray for and do a little service for the uh, for the elderly people and um, <clears throat> so we we would stand out f- uh, front of the convalescent hospital every morning we 'd meet there, and then we'd just grab hands and we 'd pray a little bit i, I 'm talking about like three minutes, you know, Lord, just you know what you can imagine, Lord, just just bless the hospital, Lord, let us be a real blessing to the to the uh, to the to the elderly people, Lord, uh, heal some people today. That would be great, you know. And we just pray these really simple prayers. So we get there early uh, one morning, and we, and we do what we have been doing for years, and we grab hands to pray, and and, and Paul prays a little bit, and then I, I go to pray, and when I go to pray, and this is exactly how it happened. Instead of praying, I say, "You'll be the next sheriff of Trinity County," <laughs> much like the psychology class. Like, I didn't know I was going to say it. I didn't even think it. It just came out of my mouth. And he said, what did you say? I said, I just think I just said, you'll be the next sheriff of Trinity County. He goes, why did you say that? I said, I have no idea. I was not premeditating that. I didn't, didn't think of it. We never had a conversation about it. He goes, wow, well, do you think I'm supposed to run for sheriff? I said, I, I, I'm serious. I didn't, never knew I was going to say that. So the short story is he runs for sheriff. Danny Silk and I became his campaign manager. I don't think Danny or I had ever voted before. much (laughs) This is again like, you know, like, you know, Forrest Gump, like stupid is a stupid does, you know. It's like, he's like, you prophesied you're going to be my campaign manager. I'm glad those rules didn't stay in place, you know, very long. So Danny and I, we became his campaign manager and, and that year, nine people ran. And we were all excited like God spoke to him. He was excited, you know, we were all excited. This is the early years of, not early years of prophetic ministry. We had been doing prophetic ministry, but it was the early years of giving people directional words and stuff like that, you know? And especially the way it all happened. So we're like, ah, divine moment, Kairos moment, you know, we didn't say it like that. But so so we go down to the precinct to watch the all of the precincts come in. We go down to the courthouse to watch the precincts come in. I don't know, there's probably seventy-five or hundred of us there all watching to see how, you know, how, the, how the primaries went. And he took, out of ninth, he took seventh. We literally went home and cried. I went home and cried. I was crying for probably more reasons than I understood. Like I was crying obviously because he lost, but I was also crying because how could God speak and it not happen? Like the confusion over what God said and what actually happened. I didn't understand it. I was, I was young. It, we didn't have a lot of the directional stuff happen. It felt like the beginning of something new. Like we were breaking into something new. And then, then it went bad. And so that was obviously on a Tuesday. On Saturday morning, it was like Paul gets up every morning early. And he, he reads his Bible and exercises. And I, I, I'm like, I sleep in anytime I can. So... Six o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. In those days, you know, you had a wire, a wire phone. I pick up the phone, you know, it's by my bed, and I'm like, hello? Hello? He's like, hi, this is Paul. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what time is it? He's like, it's six o'clock. I said, I'm sleeping, man. What do people do on Saturday morning? <laughs> sleeping. He said, man, wake up. I, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I believe I'm supposed to run as a write-in candidate. Write-in candidate, a write-in. Well, I have never heard that term. Write-in. I'm, I didn't know anything about politics. I, I'm kind of waking up. And I said, write-in candidate. He's like, yeah. I said, what does that? Like, does that mean like you're not on the ballot? He's like, yeah. You, they write my name in. I, I said, I started laughing. I said, when you were on the ballot, you took seventh, <laughs> not second, seventh out of nine. He goes, I know, I know, but God gave me a word that I'm going to be the next sheriff. I said, that was from me. <laughs> let's just say, bad word. Good try, bad word. False prophet, let's just. <laughs> the beginnings of my false prophet ministry. No, on, on a serious note, I said, that was for me. Like, I, I made a mistake. I'm so, he goes, I don't think so. I think I'm supposed to run as a write-in. Will you you help me? Will you run my campaign? (laughs) Boy, you don't learn, do you? (laughs) You do not learn. You should not be sheriff. You are not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I'm like, I don't know. I have to think about it. I I have to think about it. I I, I need to wake up and think about it. Okay, well, call me later. Yeah, right, whatever. (laughs) Kathy wakes up, and she's like, what's going on? I said, Paul... That was Paul Spence. She goes, yeah, what, what did he want? I said, he wants to run as a writing candidate. She goes, writing candidate? What's that mean? I said, you know, his name's not on the ballot. They have to write it in. She said, he's crazy. <laughs> she said, he's crazy. Then she went back to sleep. <laughs> so anyway, a, a day went by or whatever. We talked, and I'm like, okay, Danny's all in. We're like, yeah, we're with you. Bill, so the, so the Sunday before the Tuesday, that, uh, the, the, the final election, in a riding candidate, right? Bill calls him up on a Sunday morning before the Tuesday election and anoints him sheriff. (laughs) Bill's like, comes over like, hey, I think we're supposed to commission him as sheriff. I'm thinking, oh, it just keeps getting worse. This guy's got guts. So he brings him up in front of the whole entire church. I'm thinking, well, let's have a little elders meeting and prayer. Bill's like, have him come up and let's pray for him right here. Oh, gosh. So we bring him up and we anoint him sheriff. He wins by a landslide. He takes 67% of the vote and it ain't on the freaking ballot. You know what Paul understood, maybe Bill understood, that I definitely didn't understand? Paul knew that he was in a kairos moment. He knew it. He prayed, and he's like, I know I'm not on the ballot, but God said it, and I believe it. And this is a different time. We're not in chronos, we're not in chronos time. We're not, this isn't the way, yes, you can do the surveys, and those are all good. Plans are, uh, you know, of the man, uh, uh, man stand, but the, the decision belongs to the Lord. And Paul realized something that we forget. The lot is path the lot is cast, but the decision belongs to the Lord. You might say, well, you know, the guy with the most money won that election, and that election, and that election, and this election, and the guy that has the most experience, and the guy with the best marketing won, won, won. And, you know, and, and these are all chronos times. We have to say, like, that didn't look very spiritual. It didn't look like the best man won or the most spiritual woman won or didn't look like God got involved. And then suddenly it seems, I'm only saying it from the way it seems, and then it seems like God goes, "Um, no, you'll be voting for Paul. (laughs) You know what the most repeated phrase was? Because we were in business then. People came in and said, didn't you help Paul on his campaign? He said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, I came out in the newspaper for the other guy. (laughs) for the other, one of the other two guys. And he says, I went in the voting booth, and we used to use those things It pushed down, what it called chaff things. He said, I tried to push it down. It wouldn't go down. This is the most repeated phrase I heard. And I heard a voice say, write in Paul Schmidt. non believers. Couldn't get the thing to go down. Couldn't get, yes, we heard it over and over. People would say, I, 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 I went in there and I, and, and I was I'm going I'm to vote for this guy, and, and then I heard a voice. Uh, several people said, I had a dream the night before, vote for Paul Schmidt. I'm not talking about Christians. Most of the Christians voted for him. I'm saying people who didn't know God, like, I had a dream, and in a dream they said, You'll be voting for, you'll be writing in Paul Schmidt. And he wins. Stand up. That's your grandfather. You know that story, right? That, you know that story. That's a good story. And then he won four more terms after that, right? So, to, yep, yep, he won. I think he won four more terms after that, won five ter- terms total, and didn't have to run his in after that. won <laughs> every time. My point is, when God gets involved, you better understand the difference between chronos moments and Kairos moments. Because when you're in a Kairos moment, you wanna behave like the sons of Issachar who understood the times and understood what Israel should do in the times. And I wanna finish with this last thought. We are in a Kairos time. No, listen, this isn't a like a hurrah message. The Lord told me, we're in a Kairos time. I don't know if it's gonna last uh, 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 another month or another 20 years, because if you look in Israel's history, those Kairos moments were, they could have been moments, like we talked about in the book of Acts 12, where God just takes the life of that king, and I'd propose that that was actually a part of about a 28 to 35 year Kairos moment, like you think of a moment, you think, you know, one second, but I'm saying, I think for about 30 years, the early church was in this Kairos moment, in which God kind of seemed to act outside of the rules and the expectations of people. And I'd propose that we have been in a Cairo school for about two and a half years. And I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'd say be very careful in a Cairo school. And I say careful, not like, be careful, like, don't do something wrong. I mean, be like Paul Schmidt. God said, I'm going to be sheriff. I don't care I took seventh. I'm running in a ride-in." I told that story to six congresspeople a month ago. First guy goes, I had one of those. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, I was a businessman, and, I was, uh, and I, said, uh, I was praying, and God gave me this phrase. He didn't tell me what the phrase was. He said, God gave me this phrase. And he said God, He said to God, God, if that's you, confirm it to me. And he even said, like Gideon, who had the fleece. So he goes to work, and, on, and he's driving down the freeway. He sees a license plate frame. And he he said, a voice told me, go back and pick that frame up. So he took the off-ramp, came back on, and picked up the frame. And it was the exact phrase that God had given him in prayer. On the license plate frame. Instead of going to work, he turns around and goes home. And he says to his wife, I was praying this morning, the Lord gave me a phrase. And she goes, was this the phrase before he could say it? He goes, yes, look, it's on the license plate frame. He wins by a landslide. The guy next to him, remember, there's six of them. The guy next to him goes, "I had a miracle." I said, "Really? What was that?" He said, I, "I ran against two other guys. One guy raised 3.7 million. He was the incumbent. The other guy raised 3.2 million. I raised seventy-two thousand dollars." He said, "I took 60 percent of the vote and had forty thousand left over." Every single person of those six Congress people. Five men and one man, they all had a divine miracle. And I looked at them and said, how can you be powerless if God put you here? They go, we don't know, we aren't. You're not. And neither are you. Would you stand, please? And neither are you. The ark is parked at your house. You didn't get that. The ark is parked at your house. The ark is parked at your house. Oh, things are going bad. Oh, look at this. Look at California. Oh my God, I'm going to move somewhere, somewhere where God is. You are, wherever you go, God's going to be. In Jesus' name. That's my message. Now, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus or you've walked away from the Lord, what a great time to get right with God. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you just to come right up here if you want to get your life right with Jesus. You're like, everything's going wrong in my life. Well, let me, let me just be clear. Christians have bad days. How many have been a Christian more than 10 years? How many have ever had a bad day? Okay, okay. I just want to make sure everybody was like, I'm having a bad day, man, I'm not a Christian. No, no, you have bad days. But how many know God's in charge of those days? He brings good out of bad. But if you don't know the Lord, you're having a bad life. If that's you, I'd like you just to come right up here right now and let us just pray for you. Anybody like that? Just want to raise your hand and say, that's me. I, I, I need the Lord. Maybe you walked with God and you walked away and literally like you're like, what am I doing here? Like, What you're doing here is the Holy Spirit called you here just like he did me when I was a boy and he was after me every minute. He was protecting me even when I didn't know him. Maybe that's you tonight and you want to right with God. Is there anybody here? Maybe you're watching by Bethel TV and you're you're in that same place. We just want to say, you know, God loves you. He has a a wonderful plan for your life and he takes everything that's bad in your life and he turns it around for good. All right, let me just pray for you. God, I thank you for all these folks. Lord, I thank you for just the fact that we get to be alive in a Kairos moment. That they will write about a hundred years from now. There was a people who lived in this moment in history, and they changed the world. Lord, we bless your people, and we thank you for those people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to ChrisVellaton.com. Have an awesome day.